0: Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design.
1: Hey, what's going on, everybody? It is episode 217. We're recording this live on September 2nd, 2021. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today uh, across the internet by Mr. Blake Arnstorff. Bless the internet. Nick, how are you? Hey, man. I am good. Uh, we have got a great show for you tonight. Uh, we'll be talking about Tesla's humanoid robot and a bunch of other human factors applications, what it means and all that stuff. But first, we have some programming notes and community updates that we'd like you all to be aware of. Uh, we know you like conference coverage. Uh, like I mentioned last week, we're adding a new one to our list. We have the Neuroergonomics Conference of 2021. This is going to be happening from September 11th to the 16th um we've been invited you have coverage but there's more we mentioned all this last week but what we couldn't announce is that we have a giveaway we have a giveaway for a ticket to go uh three lucky winners here um will be announced on next week's podcast so if you're listening to this in the next week from when we drop it go check it out we have a link in the description of this episode um you know, if you're if you're listening or watching now, you probably already qualify for a few of the entries. So, go check that out. Um, and I think that's going to be it for programming notes. We have some more exciting announcements coming soon. So, anyway, we know why you're here. You're here for human factors news. So let's get into it. Yes, human factors news. This is the part of the show where we talk about human factors news. Uh, we, we Anything related to the field of human factors, it's a fair game for us to sit here and talk about it. This week, like I mentioned, we got Tesla is working on some humanoid robots. Break, Blake, can you break it down for me? <laughs> break, Blake <laughs> yes, it down. Yes, I can... I can blink it down for you. So Tesla CEO
2: Elon Musk says that his company is working on a humano- humanoid robot and will build a prototype sometime next year. So the humanoid robot will leverage Tesla's experience with automated machines in its factories as well as some of the hardware and software that powers the company's autopilot driver assistant software. Musk who has spoken repeatedly about his fears of runaway artificial intelligence, said the Tesla bot is intended to be friendly, but that the company w- is designing the machine at a mechanical level so that you can run away from it and most likely overpower it. It will be five feet tall, eight, five feet eight inches tall, weighing about 125 pounds, and will have a screen for a face. The code name for the bot is Optimus. And the robot's design will will handle tasks that are unsafe, repetitive, or boring for humans, as the company has written on its website. And essentially, the goal here is that for future physical work, uh, you can have this robot take over things that maybe are repetitive or you shouldn't be doing anyway as a human. So, Nick, there's a lot to kind of unpack here, but... I'm really excited because I have always wanted to see a humanoid robot and I'm I'm pretty confident that Tesla is going to kind of follow through on this pre- specific design but what are your kind of initial thoughts before we dive
1: too deep you think you could take it it's, it's uh what is it 125 pounds five foot eight you think you could take it I don't know
2: you sh- you showed a graphic earlier about its <laughs> deadlift and I was like, ooh that's that's heavy. I don't know if yeah. I could take the robot as Mr. Musk says that you can. Yeah. which is hilarious to me that it came in up in the article but of course it did.
1: So look, uh this this is a catchy headline. Uh Tesla is making humanoid robotics to put into the home. Uh and we understand that this story on its own does not have a whole lot of merit. So we're going to bring in a bunch of human factors application um from uh you know, human robotic interaction to, to help support this article basically so stick tuned stay tuned we're gonna we're gonna break down a whole bunch of human factors stuff, goodness for you um but my general thoughts on this is uh oh that's creepy oh i want one um and <laughs> like i you know my immediate first thought was it could do the dishes for me and then i thought oh yeah it could pick up you know like the gold goldfish crackers that my son leaves around the uh you know the place and and then they could do the trash and stuff like that. The the basically um, the physical work that he's talking about here, Musk. He's he's saying that there's a bunch of physical work that we do. These repetitive tasks that we want to eliminate. Um, and so, it, you know, from that perspective, I think it's great. There's sort of a less obvious application for these types of humanoid robots, though, uh, that I think deserves to be talked about, and that's something like comf- comfort, companionship. Uh, potentially, depending on the AI that's on board, um, assistance for children, elderly, autistic folks, handicapped individuals. There's a lot of things that you know maybe uh, us us privileged individuals may not think about right away, uh, where this could make a huge difference in people's lives. And I think that's always cool to highlight. Um, what What are your initial thoughts on this, Blake? I want to get your thoughts before I get to social thoughts. Sure. Yeah. So one thing that I find
2: really interesting and I hadn't, I hadn't really gone through and followed all of Tesla or all of Elon Musk's kind of like projects he'd worked on that maybe didn't pan out. So there's a bunch that are listed in this article across the board, but I, I'm, Like I said at the end of the intro, I'm kind of confident that this will be something that we will see, even if it's, you know, later than a year from now, because I think there's a lot of utility in the industry side of it for the company itself, using robots inside of their actual factories, helping reduce some of the kind of monotonous tasks that a lot of people maybe have to do, or making things safer, especially because this thing can, you know, deadlift to a certain weight or lift things maybe heavier than or safer for humans without exoskeletons. So there's a, there's a cool impact to industry itself that I think could really be awesome, in addition to what you're talking about. So there's a really great aspect of having maybe another companion in the house, let's say, if you live by yourself or if you're an elderly person. But the biggest thing for me, and COVID has really allowed me to really see how much of time i can save by not doing tasks or automating tasks and i think this is another step forward in that like doing things like not having to drive to work every day back and forth saves gas saves time um, allowed me to work two jobs simultaneously without like having to worry about transportation or anything like that and then same thing on top of doing things like ordering groceries to the house Um, it's just it's freeing up your time that we never know how much we we end up having at the very end, right? So something like a, a robot that can do some of the tasks around the house... Could be awesome. It'd be awesome if, like, you didn't have to do your laundry necessarily, or if there were other kind of manual labor tasks that you know pile up throughout the week, and so you end up spending your weekend free time cleaning your entire home. Uh, So I think there's a lot of potential, just easy benefit. But there is the the bigger question here is like, what's the how comfortable are we gonna be with this thing in the house? Um, Which I know we'll talk a little bit about later. But it's exciting because it feels like somewhere between. A you know Isaac Asimov film and some science fiction movie, uh, but also I see a lot of utility and a lot of kind of hope in uh, in the technology itself.
1: Yeah, so I want to I want to get everyone who's watching listening's thoughts uh, today. We asked, would you let a humanoid robot in your house? Is it scary? Uh, and then if you would, what tasks would you want it to perform? This is our social thoughts. And again, we post these the day of our our show. So if, if you're following us on any of these social platforms, uh, you know, you can always reach out to us. I want to highlight Barry Kirby's uh, response here because I feel like this is really important. And it goes along the line uh, it kind of opens up the discussion of human robot interaction and what it means to have artificial intelligence in your house barry writes uh have we already taken the first tentative steps within smart speakers robot vacuums and home automation the next steps of having them combined in a meaningful device is probably quite small the big step could be when we start to have more conversational style uh type of interaction um but as to the question As a gadget geek, of course I would if I could do the household, if it could do the household chores, then that would be amazing. So, um, you know, he raises some great points here with, uh, you know, we've kind of already taken the first steps to introducing AI and robots into our home. Do you have any robots in your home that you can think about off the top of your head? I actually don't. I have zero in my house. Uh, like, because I
2: I was trying to think of, do I have anything beyond just like a virtual assistant that's associated with my phone? And no, I don't. I don't really have anything that's taking care of any chores.
1: Now, do you have any? Is there anything that you use in your ecosystem? Yeah, so I have I have a voice assistant, uh, one from each of the main companies, um, and then you know I have. Um, if you think about automated tasking, I have a lot of different automated tasks that happen right lights come on at a certain time they go off at a certain time and you know what is the difference between uh, like programming and artificial intelligence and all that stuff we can talk about it but um, just bringing in more automation and bringing in more um, those assistants, I think is is a big kind of point here we'll get to more of these social thoughts uh, we'll kind of sprinkle them throughout but I did want to talk about um, use this as a springboard as as more of a human robot interaction. Uh, perspective but we can talk about it through the lens of this uh, Tesla bot um, or project Optimus as as they call it. so uh, I want to talk about briefly these four categories of human robot interaction uh, and maybe we can dig into them if any of them pique our interest here but s- human supervisory control of robots in the performance of routine tasks. So this is kind of what I was talking about right we're we're looking, uh, at these uh, routine tasks, and we're just kind of stepping back and monitoring them, right? These are kind of uh, levels of application again. So we have that one. We have remote control of space, airborne, terrestrial, and undersea, undersea vehicles for non-routine tasks in hazardous or inaccessible environments. So this is more of the remote control robot that will handle these tasks for us. So again, it's a robot. there's not... Um, That's the word I'm looking for, like AI behind it or anything. It's just you controlling this thing. But it's still part of human-robot interaction. And I think it's important because that's kind of what I was talking about with the automated systems in the house. They're not AIs. They're not technically robots, but I'm supervising them. Uh, That's that first point. Uh, Point three here, automated vehicles in which a human is a passenger, including automated highway and rail vehicles and commercial aircraft. Um, So now we are kind of uh getting to that application area where we're kind of relinquishing control to another system and we can talk about the whole like stages of automation but i think that uh it's it's different from human robot interaction it's a whole nother conversation that we can have Uh, the last one here human robot social interaction including robot devices to provide entertainment teaching comfort and assistant uh assistance for uh Individuals, uh, they go on to mention some uh, the the um, the groups I mentioned earlier: children, elderly, autistic, handicapped persons. So um, those are the four areas of application. Anyone that you that speaks to you, Blake, you want to jump into any
2: of these? So they're all kind of an interesting set of concepts. they really to tie it back to. Uh, Barry Kirby's point of the, have we already started this ball rolling of introducing a bunch of technology that has robotics associated with it in our homes now, and how's it going to like take a stepwise function to become an actual robot in your house that you're talking to conversationally to control some of these tasks for you? So I feel like right now there's a lot of stuff that we do in terms of routine tasks in our home that could be you know relegated to some sort of robot that you control whether it's via like an application or even like talking to it be it you know one of the virtual assistants or having like a Roomba in your house I do think that it's a it's kind of a an interesting place that we step between when we move to point two in which now you're still like mainly in control but you're just controlling a robot and I'm wondering if that That point, number two, is where a lot of kind of supervisory control starts and then as AI kind of develops and is able to handle more and more tasking and we start letting these teleoperators handle a lot more vehicles or handle a lot more robots at once and just be kind of monitoring for specific markers or warnings in situations where they need to intervene or the AI may be getting something wrong. Uh, But those two are kind of, I think, where we really are at the moment the most. I mean, I know we do have, you know, passenger vehicles that do have some automation tied to them. We definitely have rails and stuff like that that are tied to automation. But I feel like point one and 2 are very much, you know, almost every day for right now. But I would imagine that as time goes on, we really will have to think about what is appropriate or the best mode of human, human-robot interaction versus just human-computer interaction. Because now we'll stop stop really having to deal so much with like software things that are controlling a robot. And it will be more, I would imagine having a conversation and trying to direct a robot to complete a task, regardless of it's in your house or if it's something you're controlling in a supervisory fashion.
1: Yeah. We'll talk about teaching robots. uh, And actually we can jump into that in just a minute. I do want to get to another social thought here. So Rachel in our discord, I got a robot vacuum makes life so much easier. His name is Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, so we <laughs> there's another social thought for you um let's talk about teaching robots uh, a human basically can give uh these instructions to a robot right um specifying how to move when to move what to avoid uh but basically this is uh we're, we're trying to avoid these unattend unintended consequences right um you know as sort of these uh advances in computer-based speech under, understanding happen uh there's sort of uh a, it becomes easier to to command these robots right um but again there's this this unintended consequences that can happen right so you can think about human supervisors um giving a signal to the robot to do the thing Right. And, and basically, this would be kind of an extension of uh, displays or update models that um, kind of look ahead at some of these things that are going to happen. So you you kind of understand what the robot's intent is going to do, and then you say, yes, go and do it. Um, I, I think teaching a robot is is an interesting thing because, like, what if I want a robot to go into goldfish mode? I have to teach it what a goldfish is. I have to teach it where it's likely to be or what area I want it to pick up the goldfish from. Uh, I have to teach it where those goldfish go. Uh, and then there's um, training an artificial intelligence system to recognize when a goldfish is in fact a goldfish or it's a toy Um you know, from from some other set that looks like a goldfish, and so what's the level of tolerance there? So there's a lot, you know, and and what if that robot misunderstands one of my son's toys uh, for a goldfish and throws it out? Well, then he's going to be upset because he can't find his toy uh, because uh, Daddy Robot threw it out, right? So like, there's there's all these things that we have to think about, um, and it's it's going to be especially. Uh, interesting i'll say interesting to to consider what these unintended consequences would be in the home um wh- what do you think about training robots Blake and what kind of like human factors <laughs> applications we have there i think it
2: This is probably a crass way to put this, but I feel like a lot of the problems that may arise from training a robot in the home is similar to how you feed an algorithm data or in machine learning, right? Like, it's only as good as the input you're providing it, and what comes out is going to be likely a function of what's being given to the robot itself. I think a lot of what's going to be really tough at first iteration of this kind of stuff or integrating it into your home is... And I'm not an AI expert. I don't pretend to be. But I know that we don't have generalized artificial intelligence, you know, available open on the market where it can learn from a lot of mistakes very quickly. So there will be a lot of, you know, in terms of your human factors applications, if you think about putting a robot in someone's home, let's say you got it and you have a kid. I have it and I have like a, a dog and a partner. You're going to have to go through a period where basically you have to. You know, take tutorials, if you will, on how to interact with the robot appropriately so that you you know what commands to execute and you know what to expect it to do. And you also know what the limitations of the robot itself is, because I, I think up front, it's going to be much more... Or it's going to be kind of unlikely that the robot's going to be picking up, you know, from an AI perspective, like, oh, I have to be careful when I walk through the living room that I don't bump into things. I think it'll be able to map its environment, yes, but things like, let's say, you know, if it's – let's say it was dusting the television and knocked it knocked a plan off of the the table – I'm not sure that it's going to necessarily learn that that was something, an unintended consequence at first. But by, you know, having that experience over time, you would imagine that development of AI and implementation into robots, it could learn to avoid, you know, haphazard things like that. So I could imagine up front things in terms of unintended consequences are going to be, you know, things you just don't expect or you can't, you know, you really can't beta test in a pr- production environment because you never know what everybody's house is going to be like, what the environment is and things like that. So I think a lot of it's going to be upfront trying to figure out what's the easiest way to kind of like with any other app that you download on your phone, what's the what's the sweet spot between too much information and overwhelming the end user and then making sure that they feel comfortable and able to use the application. It would be the same thing with any kind of integration of a robot into your home environment. What are the variables you need to understand as an end user and what are like the key things you need to know in order to effectively have a relationship with it in your home? Um, So I think, you know, either developing AR applications to kind of let you walk through and experience what the robot can do or, you know, giving you some kind of companion app that allows you to do that supervisory control uh, could be really helpful but in terms of teaching it, I think there's going to be a bit of a gap until we get to the point where AI is really expansive and more ubiquitous uh, before we really see a whole lot of learning on the job, if you will. Uh, but there'll be a lot of like continually feeding robots different data and trying to understand like how to basically make it very uh, customized for your own home and your own experience that you want to have
1: with it. Right. And I mean, a lot of that will come, I think, from the access to the other data sets. Right. Imagine somebody puts together a module to dust the TV and it learns from not just in your household, but how other Tesla bots learn. They learn from each other. Uh, and you know, eventually human bad, but if you think about that way, right, you have access to all this data. You might be able to download routines similar to how you do on one of these voice assistants, uh, that other people put together. You can do these routines and then they perform them. Um, and then, you know, kind of extrapolating from that, uh, and a tie back to last week's episode when, when thinking about learning, right? Like maybe you could download some module, as a parent, this would be cool. Download some module uh, to have the robot teach using the screen on its face, expressive uh, like emojis or whatever, um, to teach a a complex uh, topic to my child, or you know something like that. And you could use this almost like a an education tool for children because you know they they learn um, better when they're interacting with a live human than. Um, than you know a a television screen or something but if you have a robot that's able to use a human voice and animate like a human that would be an interesting study to see how exactly you know children understand or or really how people of different ages and abilities learn from robots um and i think that's a that's a key human factors concept that should be explored right any thoughts on education
2: I think that's awesome. I one, it's not it's not a thought on education, but we'll let me walk down that road for a second. So I, I do think that based on what we talked about last week, we're using VR for those maybe who didn't listen to the episode. Definitely go check it out because it was a it had a lot of kind of cool visuals associated with it and a lot of interesting neuroscience behind it. But the gist being that learning through virtual reality it provides a little bit of a more exciting learning experience is the biggest takeaway, but also could potentially over time provide a way to really have an immersive learning experience too. Now, a lot of that had to do with just the immersive aspects of it, of being able to see things from different vantage points and the very interactive nature of VR. So imagine that, like Nick's described, in your home teaching you something, where you you effectively have a robot teacher. And because these things are very humanoid-like, you could imagine being able to see something done in real time in front of you and understanding whatever concept you're trying to learn. Say it's like, I don't know, math, playing guitar, whatever it might be, um, how immersive that could be. And, and it could also be, like Nick said, a cool way for you to basically access different routines or open source software to teach different you know, skills maybe to a kid or to even yourself Uh but the one thing that you did bring up that of course my mind immediately goes to is if let's say we are allowing this to be you know something that's open source software and you can download routines download whatever you want to imagine the the amount of data that is likely being collected on your interactions with this specific robot but also some Potential vulnerabilities of this basically being uh, another thing that's connected to the Internet of Things. So now you've got a humanoid robot that is, to uh, to uh, Elon's point, something you supposedly could overtake. But it's a it's a, it's essentially another human that you would have to deal with in your house. It could poten- potentially, you know, be dangerous in some capacity or another if it was subject to
1: hacking or anything like that. It falls over on you even or. You know, on yeah. on a cat trips over a cat that it doesn't detect or something. You know, um, well let's talk let's talk about fears uh, and and kind of how the integration of these robots might you know come into our, our daily lives. Um, you know, there's a lot of media out there that actually talks about robot takeovers. I mean, that's Elon's whole fear, right? Uh, yeah. And and so um, you know, it's it's kind of we're conditioned to think that way when we see robots performing these tasks. Did you see the Atlas robots a couple weeks ago doing parkour, right? All the comments on that were, um, yeah. <laughs> oh, well they're, we're, we're screwed. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you think about what this means for us as a society. Um, are these, are these robots taking our jobs away? Uh, or are they providing more jobs, you know, constructing them, doing the AI behind them, uh, are they useful assistance, enhancing our self-worth or are they diminishing our sense of self? Um, are they improving security or becoming spies? These are types of questions that human factors needs to solve. And mostly and, and something I'm really excited about is messaging, right? Like how do we wh- like you open this thing up, what does the messaging look like from the presentation? of you know, opening this up does it show up in a box at your door do you pick it up in a factory and have it sit in your car on your way home does it talk to you while you're driving home is it just this void in the back seat like all these uh, things getting the device it i call it a device getting the robot into your home is going to be an experience and so you have to think about this from from the very beginning of buying the thing do you you know hold its hand as you walk out the door. Like, I don't know what this looks like. Do you keep it in a box until you get it home? Put it in the back of the truck, open it up. It says, hello, my name is bot bot. And, and you can name me whatever you want. And like, what is the present? What is the first thing that comes out of its mouth when it comes into your home? There's a lot of things that you have to think about in terms of, um, presentation here to get over some of these fears, to integrate them appropriately with our lifestyles, uh, and I just find it fascinating. I don't know. I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that whole whole perspective, Blake. I just
2: imagine this thing, you, or you order it through whatever means, and it just shows up automatically driven to your house in a Tesla and dropped off, and it knocks on your door and introduces itself. That's what my vision of its messaging is and how it wow. inter- enters your life. Uh, but yeah, I mean- it's, it's really tough, right? Because I think there's a lot of potential scary aspects of it. And really going back to – I'm going to mess this up. Going back to point two you made, kind of like what are some of the, the big application areas? So thinking about remote control of space, airborne, terrestrial, undersea vehicles for non-routine or hazardous tasks. That to me really makes me think of what if we could do military operations with these unmanned vehicles – that you can control from afar but it also leads to the scary point which i which came up from the atlas robot it's come up from the different hound robots like do these things start participating in warfare and that that opens a whole different scary can of worms from my perspective because uh, you know war and whatnot is terrible as it is and if we're kind of in- integrating and using robots as part of this it just it it doesn't feel like it's gonna end in a a great place for humanity in and of itself, but pulling it back to just some of the security vulnerabilities that maybe you expose yourself to by potentially having one of these in your house. I think that's a big side of this that has to be thought through before you start, you know, just sending these one-off deals to somebody's home. Uh, Because like cybersecurity, as we know, across definitely our nation, but across the world, it's a thing that's relatively hard to kind of, address every point. Like a lot of times, the vulnerabilities appear that you maybe wouldn't have expected, or there's just not people with the expertise in every organization to identify them. So I think companies like Tesla, who hopefully are on the kind of cutting edge of thinking about that and with, you know, people do poke fun at Elon Musk for his thoughts about AI and it kind of taking over the world, but hopefully that's leading itself to creating stuff that is safer for you to put in your home and be able to use it in kind of the, the fashion that it's meant for, which is just making life a little bit simpler and giving you back some time in your life day to
1: day. Yeah. So I do want to mention that we have been using uh, an article uh, published by Thomas Sheridan uh, in the Human Factors and Ergonomics Journal. Um, and the title of the article is Human-Robot Interaction, Status, and Challenges. I've been using that for a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about today. If anyone's interested, we'll put the link down below. Um, but I do want to bring some key points kind of home to, to round out this discussion, and these are from the article here. So some of the major human factors research challenges include task analysis, so that includes dynamics, economics, other factors, teaching the robot, uh, and avoidance of unintended consequences like we talked about. We also have considering how both human and the robot have mutual models of each other, the use of robots in education, coping, and and the last one here, coping with uh, user culture, fears, and other value considerations. So these are some major human factors research challenges. Um, And then there's a couple extra key points here in the article. To date, except for aviation, the human factors community has contributed a very small fraction of the human robotics papers in the literature. So there's kind of this call to action for more coverage on human-robot interaction. This article was published in 2016. I'd imagine not much has changed since then. Um, We've had two years of a pandemic, and, uh, you know, (laughs) it's only five years ago. So, um, yes, things change, but research is slow. So think about that. So uh, there's a couple other points here. Essentially, all robots for the foreseeable future will be controlled by humans either as tele-operators steered by continuous manual movement or as tele-robots intermittently monitored and reprogrammed by human supervisors. Um, he, another point, uh, human-robot interaction is a rapidly expanding field with a great need for human factors involvement in research and design, especially as robots are challenged to undertake more sophisticated tasks, like the Tesla bot wants to. Uh, in any case, the first 90% of Replacing humans with robots is much easier than the last 10%. And then last point here, whereas the human race is changing very slowly, computers and robots are evolving at a very rapid pace. Therefore, specific conclusions about human-robot interaction are likely to become invalid in a short time. Motivation of the human-robotics interaction community seems to be more focused on building and demonstrating what works and provoking new ideas than in providing detailed and validated scientific conclusions. So we're looking ahead. We're not quite, you know, an- uh, analyzing everything that's there now. Um, I'm going to read a social thought, and then we'll get back to you, Blake. So uh, this one is from our good buddy Matteo. Uh, Matteo writes: Hang on, I got to, I got to make this a little bigger because I can't see it. Yeah, it might be too big. Uh, <laughs> here, I'll, I'll read Kristen's. Are they waterproof? Because I hate doing dishes, and actually. If I g- only get to pick one chore, I do yard, yard work. I hate bugs. I'm going to pull up Mateo's. Why don't you give your thoughts on those key points there, Blake? The key points are really interesting. So I'm kind of – it's
2: it's the last point was really a shocker to me because I, I think it does make sense, right? Because as technology is continually evolving, everybody is likely trying just to push the bounds of what can be created. Like as, as you get more – more machine learning algorithms that work better more are closer to ai development and as robotics get better sleeker easier to use but there is a great point there that a lot of what will need to be thought through as we continue moving forward and as we start putting these things out into the world is really understanding the impact that they have from a scientific point of view both on probably human cognition and interaction but also just like the computing science behind all of it yeah great point
1: all right one last social thought here and then we'll go ahead and Hammer at home. Uh Mateo says, definitely cleaning, always cleaning. Today it's a Roomba. Tomorrow it's hey Jeeves. The humanization of robots definitely makes them more relatable and less threatening. I don't know. Some might uh disagree with that <laughs> assessment. Um all right, Blake. Any other closing thoughts on the Tesla bots before we get out of here? Not
2: necessarily, but a question for you, and then I'll I'll answer it as well. Okay. So- we took the social thoughts.
1: We put it out to the world. Now, would you put this thing in your home? Yes, absolutely. I think, uh, like I said, I want these goldfish cleaned up as efficiently and as quickly as possible. Uh, I want the dishes done as quickly, as efficiently as possible. I want uh, the toilet scrubbed as quickly, as efficiently as possible. I want uh, you know, our supplies refilled as quickly and efficiently as possible. I want... I want to basically just take things out and not put them away and have the robot put them away in the right place so that way I know where to get them. Uh, what about you, Blake? Would you put this thing in your house? I wouldn't put it in my house, mainly because I don't live in a house. I live in a small <laughs> apartment.
2: And I don't know where it would live. I mean, would it live on the couch crash on the me? Couch every night? I don't know. So just because of space limitations, I would have to say no now. But maybe in the future if I can give it its, its own room and all that kind of good you stuff. Yeah, it a
1: closet. It doesn't need a yeah. full
2: living space. It just needs a place there to charge up. Well, yeah, if we had a closet with a charger, I would do it then. But one day,
1: maybe one day. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you to our patrons uh, for selecting our topic this week. And thank you to our friends over at The Verge, uh, Tesla, and of course, HFES for publishing that article by uh, Sheridan. Uh, For our news story this week, if you want to follow along, join me on Office Hours every Monday night uh, where I find these news stories. Uh, And and we do post the links to all these articles uh, in our weekly roundups on our blog. You can also join us on Slack or Discord for more discussion on these and to be tuned in for when we do uh, social thoughts. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community.
0: Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us.
1: Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons and especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, patron Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you, keep the show running. Thank you so much for your continued support. If you want to become a patron, uh, you can certainly do that. You have access to Human Factors Minute, something that continues to surprise us week to week, Uh, even ourselves. um, I think that we managed to put it together and have some really interesting things to talk about. Uh, Anyway. I think it's time we switch gears and get into this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. Yes, it came from. This is, we're going to check out what's going on in the community here. Uh, we're, we're searching all over the Internet to bring you topics that the community is talking about. Um, so, you know what, wherever you're watching, if you if you find this useful, go ahead and give us a like, a thumbs up, whatever, you're, whatever the thing is that you're watching on right now. Uh, all right. We have three tonight. I think we'll only do three. Um, Blake, let's do it. I think we talk about maybe the first two and the last one, or maybe the first three. I'm not sure. We'll we'll get there. Uh, let's see here. This first one though is from the User Experience subreddit. This is to be successful in this field. Do you need to speak more than what is required? Please read. This is by BadBoy1245 uh, on the User Experience subreddit. Now, really quick, off the top of the At the top here, you're talking to two people on a podcast. So, of course, we're going to talk more than necessary, but let's just do it. Yeah. They go on to write There are some people in my organization I have noticed who go on speaking about a topic more than what's required and take ages to put across their point. Something that can't be explained or something that can be explained in two minutes takes almost 10 minutes to finish. Honestly, it becomes so boring and I literally lose track of the topic because of this. They go off topic. Talk about everything and don't come straight to the point regardless of the topic, be it a process explanation, client presentation, team discussions, etc. The weird thing is that the upper management somehow like this as they feel the person is very knowledgeable and knows his or her stuff. I, on the other hand, am completely the opposite. I, for the love of God, can't seem to go off topic and finish my talks fairly quickly. But because of this, I'm looked down upon and get called out for it. This is not a rant, but I was genuinely curious so I've observed this thing in my three years of a career as a designer and wanted to know, am I in the wrong here and should I potentially speak more or is this something, is this actually a problem and have you encountered it also? I personally feel it's uh, rather inefficient, but please, if I'm doing it wrong, please let me know. Thanks, Blake. Let's talk about communication. Have... How long does it take you to communicate something? What What's all the all the stuff going on?
2: Yeah, so one thing to consider here is it depends on like your personality and also how you present or how you process information. Because I know that I can be pretty long-winded. Like, of course, I do a podcast with Nick, and most people that listen to it know that I am long-winded. But even at work, I can be because uh, I, I sometimes have to be processing thoughts as I'm saying them. So that's one thing to consider. It could be these people that are a little bit more, bit more long winded than you are. Their communication style is just different in how they process information. This is actually something Elise has really turned me on to and this could be called what's like a verbal processor or a in real time processor where actually talking through the ideas helps to turn light bulbs on for them and they discover things like as they're actively talking. Uh, so that could just be a communication style thing to get used to. Uh, but What is maybe a little bit more concerning is the fact that you're experiencing that, hey, I feel like I can say the things I need to say in a very short amount of time. I feel like it's effective and it gets the point across however you feel like you're being looked down upon for it. Now, this could just be happening. It could be that some people value more words or more time being taken up, more time spent in meetings than they do just the – the meat and potatoes of what you're actually saying. Uh, but one thing I would encourage you to do, especially if you've observed this over across many years, is maybe talking to some of your peers and trying to understand when you do give these explanations that are related to whatever it is, if it's a presentation, if it's talking in a stand-up, whatever, do are you really getting the point across effectively for other people? Because it may be that you don't know your audience well enough, and it could be that you're explaining things in a quick um, to-the-point manner, with, but you're leaving out details that are important for the larger team. Especially, let's say, if you're working in like, a cross-functional team where everybody doesn't necessarily know the nuances of the product or the portion of the project you're working on. Could be that you just need to provide more details for your specific audience. So, long story short, or long story long in this case, it could be fine what you're doing, but I would definitely talk to other peers, people that you trust, or people that you work with to Make sure that what they hear in these different instances is you getting your point across. You're just doing it quickly. Uh, but also consider the audience of who you're presenting all this information to. But Nick, what do you have? What's your experience here in communication with various people?
1: Yeah, communication is really important, obviously. Um, look, I was the kid in school that always got frustrated with the teachers for teaching so slowly until I realized exactly what Blake was saying is that people learn differently and people absorb information differently. And so, um, while you might be able to get this very quickly, others may not be keyed in to all the intricacies of the topic. And so, it might take them a little bit more time to understand sort of the context around whatever's being presented. Um, for me, and this is something that is a good practice no matter where you are. Uh, When I put together briefs, a brief needs to stand alone uh, without, you know, it it needs to stand alone when you send it off. Somebody should be able to sit down and read through that brief and understand exactly what you're talking about. Uh, And so when you do that, you provide a lot of context. And so um, when, you, when, you, when you brief those briefs that have all that context in it, you need to provide that context verbally and you need to provide several different examples a lot of the time for somebody to understand exactly what you're talking about. Uh, because if you are presenting to stakeholders, they might not understand what a usability study is. They might not understand exactly what you have done to perform a usability study. What did it entail, right? You can say... We found this, and that's your point. But they don't have trust in that point because they haven't gone on that journey with you to understand that ah, you did your due diligence, you have you you know what you're talking about, and um, clearly, the this is a result of our product and not just your interpretation. And I think that's a really important point for human factors practitioners or. Uh, user experience professionals who are looking to present something to somebody, you are an expert, but at the same time, you are an advocate for the user. So you need to explain to them that all the findings are based on user feedback and you're just the person that's advocating for them. And while it might be tempting to say, look at all the stuff I know, look at the heuristic analysis I performed. That's, not going to be as powerful as you know seeing user data that says i hate this product um and so (laughs) showing them how you got to the point where the user is saying i hate this product is going to be a lot more effective than just coming out and saying the users hate this product uh and i think that's probably the most stark uh example of that but that's kind of what i'm thinking is going on here again without more context not sure um any other thoughts on that blake
2: yeah, I mean, essentially, one thing to consider is, because this person specifically mentions that they're a designer, half of the job is storytelling. Like, it's, it's not so much are you able to Good do point. the things and use the tools, it's communicating the rationale between why what you did is the end result. So Nick is absolutely right. You've, you've got to realize, one, that you are an expert. And you've got to understand that their fallacies come with being an expert. You do things that are so innate at this point that you don't even know to explain them. So that could be a large portion of what's happening. Maybe you're working with diverse people with different backgrounds and like different levels of expertise. So you have to really storytell, talk about the process and how you got to the end goal versus just coming out and like Nick's example saying product sucks, users hate it. That's the end of my little two-minute two <laughs> check-in. Can't really do that. doesn't yeah. work. Exactly.
1: All right, let's get into this next one here. This one is, uh, speaking of design, staying plugged in to the design universe. This is from Neurotic Buddha. We've had on the show before, uh, or we've, we've had, featured one of their uh, It Came From's before. Uh, also from the User Experience subreddit here, we're looking at, um, because I'm the only designer at my company, I often feel as though I'm not keeping up with the evolution of UX design. Uh, or research methods for that matter, uh, since we're on a Human Factors podcast. I follow a bunch of different blogs and listen to podcasts here and there, but most of these just discuss methodologies or career advice. What do you Uh-oh. do to stay plugged in uh, and up to date with design trends in the industry? Blake.
2: The bet is. Maybe this is outing myself a little too much, but it's always good to do this. So I think the best way to do anything and stay involved in it is to teach it. Like for for those who don't know, like I've I've had a weird kind of career path. Like I started off as like a human factors analyst, if you will. Got dabbling into design, and then really went all the way as a designer, and then moved into you know functional prototyping and front end engineering. So breadth of skills, pretty vast. But the way that I got to be a designer was through teaching. I di- I was not very good at design on my own. I really didn't, you know, know where to even go to, you know, be plugged into the design community or the UX community. Uh, so teaching through various platforms has been really beneficial to me. Uh, and I think ultimately through like Design Lab and now with ADP list. By interacting with people constantly going through, coming out of boot camps and then needing advice on getting their career started or working with people, teaching them different things in Figma or whatever it may be, that kind of act of mentorship and teaching has really kept me, you know, quote unquote, plugged into what's going on in UX design because new people that are coming and learning it for the first time through the various programs that I'm a part of, they always have questions about something they read on the internet or A a, something they heard on a podcast or a talk that they sat in on, and so it forces me to go and do my homework, if you will, and understand the design trend or the new way to do a prototyping thing in whatever design tool we're working in. So it's it's really allowed me to stay, you know, plugged in in much more of a way than just consuming content. Because like again, throwback to the episode last week. That more immersive learning experience, which I think teaching really helps you get that experience, can just keep you in the loop of everything that's going on in your field or your industry and keep you kind of excited about it. So I don't know. I would try and mentor other people if you're a little bit more senior or if you've had a couple of years' experience. That can really help you just learn new things about the field that you're in and kind of just constantly keep you on your toes. Uh, But Nick, how do you stay plugged in to... You know
1: what's going on in the hf world oh man i love it when we have different answers and i think your answer is great uh i just have a different one so mine is keeping in touch with people which is kind of your answer but yours is more like get it from a variety of different sources mine is like go to conferences stay up to date with the latest in the field um, by following individuals or connecting with individuals Uh, like you say you're the only designer at your company then maybe make a connection elsewhere um, or catch up with some old friends and be like, hey, uh, what are you doing to do X, Y, and Z? And that's what conferences are great for, um, is that you get sort of exposed to some of these new methodologies or um, some of these new trends, right? I think <clears throat> from speaking from design, right, I think there's a lot of things that you can absorb just from using other products. Y- you can, you know, you, you start to develop an eye for Things like drop shadows or rounded edges or, uh, you know, other sort of design elements like pastel colors. Like you get you sort of start to absorb what other companies are doing. And if you follow the leaders um, and I, I, you know, take that as you will. Uh, There are certain companies that are more ubiquitous than others and they're more permanent or sorry, they're more uh, a permanent fixture in our lives than others. Let's put it that way. And so they have large teams dedicated to um, improving user experience and design. And so uh, not not to say that they're right all the time. Uh, Looking at you, uh, Windows, I, I forget what it was. Anyway, not to say that they're right with the tiles, come on, <laughs> not to say that they're right all the time, but, you know, they're they're um, industry leaders. And so paying attention to what they're doing will often put you at least in the right direction, especially because of how ubiquitous these products are. They're going to be used by many people. And so the translation to another product is not going to be that much of a stretch if you follow their example. Um, and so, you know, I, I, again, hate saying beg, borrow and steal, but if somebody else has already done it and they've done the research and they shared it at a conference or on their professional platform via Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever, um, then you're probably okay to use that as justification to incorporate that in your design. Uh, any other thoughts on that one, Blake?
2: The last bit that I would say, if you really feel like you want to stay plugged in and on top of what's going on, there's no better way to do that, I think, than creating content around it. Whether it's a podcast, it's Instagram posts, it's LinkedIn articles, it's a YouTube channel. That's a great way to force yourself to have to like look at what other people are doing and then say, like, what... What, how is this applicable to me and how is this applicable in a way for an audience that I want to create? So that's another way to kind of stay on top of trends and things like that. Again, it's much more getting into the immersive space to actually show what's going on or what's new in the world.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's all we have time for with It Came From. I do want to get into this one more thing that needs no introduction. <laughs> it's one more thing. It's where Blake and I talk about one more thing. Blake, what do you got this week? Uh, I got kind of a weird one. So today was a,
2: it was, so it was a big like heavy music awards, uh, show. And there's a, my favorite podcast, the guy that does it, he was up to win for, you know, the metal genre or whatever. And he did. And it was just a really cool experience for me personally, as someone who like COVID has had a lot of weird impacts on my life that I'm starting only to really pinpoint now. But one thing was kind of introducing this person and this personality into parts of my life. Like, I don't know the guy. I we're, don't have any kind of actual relationship. But there's been a lot of me consuming his content and things like that um, and learning his life story. And it was just really cool to watch somebody who's who a couple of years ago felt like they hit rock bottom kind of reinvigorate and change their entire life through a way that really only COVID could have provided through canceling all shows and canceling normal mediums of doing things. So it was just a, an interesting kind of experience to be able to share with somebody through Twitch, through like a, a giant audience or whatever, and just made me feel really good. That's so, awesome. I don't know. Yeah. Hey.
1: How about you, Nick? What's going on with well, you? Well, hang on. You know what? If you're listening to this uh, and you've listened to the show for a long time, we've been in your ear holes or on your TV or whatever for a long time um, – and we, we want to return the favor. Reach out, say hi. We'll say hi back. We're we're pretty approachable. So if you had an we experience like Blake, uh, where you know we're part of your lives in some way, uh, we're pretty approachable. Join our communities. Um, you know that's always a good way to kind of get into the the whole thing. I don't know. That's it is weird, right? When you like talk to somebody who's on a podcast because you're like, I know so much about you, but you know nothing about me. Um, yeah, it's really strange. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's like it's a it's the
2: strangest dynamic ever, but it's uh it's cool. It's I've learned a lot and it's a it's a fun way to interact with people across the internet.
1: Yeah. All right, so my one more thing uh is this platform called Gather. Um and this is a virtual meeting software. This is what the Neuroergonomics conference is going to be using for their virtual venue. And uh I will show video of this uh, in the post-show. Blake, I know you got to run, but I will show video of this in the post-show because it's so cool. But basically, it's like if you took an 8-bit video game and designed a conference center around this video game, uh, you can actually walk around and interact with elements in the environment. Uh, You can... uh, What's the word I'm looking for? You can basically... Uh, interact with other people in the environment you can uh, interact with posters in the environment and it looks like an 8-bit video game I wish I could pull it up for you I'm trying right now but it's not working so maybe maybe we'll show it later oh there it is Uh, so for everyone listening I'll try my best to describe what's going on here Um, but I'm at a virtual conference right now and I'm actually walking around uh you know with my little avatar this is the venue for the neuroergonomics conference and you can go into like poster sessions here and look at individual poster sessions and presumably watch like a video of somebody performing it um but i just thought it was it was such a neat little thing i was geeking out so much about this uh to our lab uh that you know i just i i loved it so much i had to i had to like give it together uh, because it's really cool, uh, and if you want a chance to go to this, so you can actually experience Gather yourself. If you go to the Neuroergonomics Conference, you can actually experience the venue before it starts. You can go check it out. Um, but again, if you wanted that chance to win, you can you can certainly enter the contest. Again, that uh, that giveaway will be linked in the description of this episode. Um, and I would have said it without the giveaway, but it's just it's an awesome. It's, it's awesome. I was geeking out so much about this thing. It's so cool.
2: Yeah, that is an amazing take on the virtual experience uh, for a conference, for meetups, whatever they end up using, everything Gather does. That's so, so cool. I'm
1: so excited to attend. 8-bit, top-down, it- MMO at a conference. It's, it's, Let's go. That's exactly what it is. Um. <laughs> all right, let's take it home. That's it for today, everyone. Uh, let us know what you guys think of the story this week. Are you gonna put a Tesla bot in your home? Let us know down in the comments. Uh, you can always hang out with us on Slack, Discord, get to us on any of our social channels, visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you wanna support the show, you can do a couple things to support the show. One, you can leave us a five-star review can uh, tell your friends about us that's another thing you can do consider supporting us on patreon that always helps the show uh grow and use more advanced technology to get the human factors word out there and as always links to all of our socials our website and the giveaway are going to be in the description of this episode i want to thank mr blake arnstor for being on the show today where can our listeners go and find you if they want to find about out about clearing out their closet for their own tesla bot if you guys want to join
2: me in the clearing-out-your-closet revolution for our Tesla bots, you can always find me across social media at Don't Panic UX or in the Human Factors cast, Discord, or Slack at Blake.
1: As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch every Monday night at what, 4 p.m. Uh, for my office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors cast. Until next time, it, it
3: depends. depends.